Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, Episode 3, Part 2, Derek Robertson. Welcome along to Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name is Leonard Sultana and this is where we talk uh, convention culture, comic cons and all the stuff and nonsense we get to enjoy at such events when they happen, when they run of course, because uh, we are uh, looking forward to uh, returning to some kind of normality as we suspect it's going to be next year uh, when we get the chance to uh, meet our favourite creators and uh, hopefully uh, get to uh, all meet each other again. Um, but as it happens, what we try to do on this show is kind of fill that stopgap and uh, introduce you and uh, talk to uh, here on the show. And as it happens, we've got ourselves a blinder for this. Uh, really looking forward to talking to Derek Robertson. Hello there, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm surviving. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. It's been a long weekend. Um, yeah. <laughs> have, have it, have it, well, it's been a long week. It's been a long year. I mean. A long year. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, the meme about uh, 2020 has been uh, one hell of a decade. Um, I think yeah. that kind of, that definitely uh, sums a lot of things up. Accurate. But, so DC fandom, but also with DC news at the beginning of the week as well. I mean, the industry being in all sorts of flux. So it's all kind of keeping keeping fans like myself very much occupied. But pleasure to having you join us. Thank you so much indeed um, for coming on. What I'm trying to do with this particular season is start with three questions. So we'll start with our three. Uh, number one, what tea are we drinking today? What beverage are you on? Are you uh, have you something to hand? I have a little bit of my morning coffee still. Excellent stuff. Mine is my Yorkshire tea. It's up to slurping that as we go. Um, question number two is um, this one's slightly different to the usual question you usually get at the beginning of these uh, interviews. Is usually you get um, what was the first comic that uh, you remember reading or the first. Um, comic that you remember getting back from uh, your you know, the corner store or whatever but i'd like to ask what was the first comic that you read where you recognized those um credit boxes where you recognized there were talents involved in putting books together that opened oh, up your eyes yeah i think it would have been um I, I, that's a funny question that's a good question i don't remember the what comic it was i do remember the epiphany that i had when i recognized that somebody had worked on that comic and it was like that's somebody's job and that made me want to do it but i the first comic that really grabbed me and i started collecting and cop you know really taking comic art seriously was flash 272 and i know that was drawn by rich buckler okay but i don't remember which one made me like that i really dialed in on the fact that somebody was getting paid to do that because then i was i was like seventh grade so i was yeah. you know maybe 12 13 and i was like wait this is somebody's job you know <laughs> <laughs> I do like asking that question because there is yeah, that moment when you're reading it as a, reading comics as a kid and you just think they just magically appear out of That's nowhere. That's how most people still treat comics. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very good point. Very good point indeed. And also, since we are going to be talking about comic cons, I think we'll probably actually start with that subject and then dial into. Uh, uh, yeah, all those your... photos in your intro made me kind of like uh, sort of homesick and nostalgic because didn't you know like was oh, it? the world before COVID. <laughs> It was uh, talking to Scott Snyder this week, and he was saying, "Yeah, I, I was watching the intro, and it, oh man, he, he almost started tearing up. He started yeah. going, all these shows that he's missing.' A million years did I think there would be a world without San Diego Comic Con? 
tell me about it. Uh, considering that um, this would have been my, because I missed last year uh, yeah. due to funds and stuff. This was going to be my grand return. And obviously, yeah. 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 Um, the question is, uh, has there been a wobbly knees moment at a Comic-Con oh, where you've met yeah. an idol and how did it go? Um, God, a, a number of them. I think my favorite memory was I went to the Dead Dogs party, which is this um, creators only party that happens at the end of Comic-Con. And I went into the bar and uh, Frank Miller, Dave Gibbons and Bill Sienkiewicz were drinking. And I know Dave and he invited me over and I had beers with those three. And that was probably the greatest con moment of my entire life. <laughs> because I, was with, I mean these guys are just they, they sit at the top of olympus in my mind you know as far as talent goes and i i just to be drinking with them and be treated like a peer was just amazing so wow. that's probably my biggest wobbly knees moment as you put it <laughs> can you, you know, remember can you remember much about like that I, evening oh yeah i mean it, <laughs> i mean you know I, I could hold my own, but uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was it was it was exquisite. I just I, they're all three great people just to talk to as in general, but to be able to really talk to them and and ha not have a bunch of fans around and not have it be a you know chaotic situation, but just friendly party uh, atmosphere. That was that was really great. I can imagine. I mean, what was your last Comic Con that you attended uh, this uh, time? Yeah, I mean, can you? Was yeah, I, mean, I went down to Mexico City. Um, for many, it was like C2E2 at the beginning of the year. I mean, what was what was it, the last one for you? It was uh, Mexico City La Mole in uh, March, just before everything locked down. Wow. So, uh, yeah. It's, it, it, I think the fact that it just happened on a dime, I think that's yeah. what really took a lot of people's uh, I was literally, sales. Yeah, I literally was flying. I barely made the plane before we found out they were shutting borders and then i flew in and all of san francisco had just locked down and it was uh it was surreal we drove through uh i took an uber home and uh driving through the city and just seeing all the lights off and the streets empty uh was something else that's a 28 days later kind of moment good grief yeah okay <laughs> Uh, so, can you remember your first Comic-Con? And I do yes. like asking this question. Did you go as a pro or did you go as a fan? As what a pro. Was... Well, no, that's yeah. not that's not true. Um, I had gone to um, a small convention in San Jose and met, and I had never been to one before. And that that's the first one I remember. Uh, and I met some pros there. And, uh, Frank Sirocco and... Uh, uh, sorry, I'm having a, a, a on-camera brain freeze <laughs> i met the mind fart we all have them i had some it was like it was like a small local show but i'd never been to anything like that and i was i had my sketchbook with me and i was like showing all the pros like what do you think and they were all very encouraging which was nice because i know that and then, you started um creating comics very early doors so yeah i was like still in high school so i'm guessing i'm guessing you walked through those doors. yeah yeah so you, had, you, like, you had your portfolio with you yeah, later yeah, how, on. How confident yeah, I, were you when you walked through the doors? Oh, not at all. I mean, I it's just like I, I've, I've never. I don't think I've ever moved through this business with a great deal of confidence. It's like I'm, I'm my own worst critic, and all I can usually see is what's wrong with my work. So I'm always like grateful that I'm getting hired. You know, like I'm grateful that I'm, I'm just happy to be here. Kind of attitude. So, who was the first pro that kind of showed you the? Those first notes. I'm sorry. Who's the, the first? 
Yeah, sure. Who was the first pro to uh, come to kind of give you those initial encouraging notes and those uh, first tips? Uh, Frank Sirocco uh, was who you did a book called Alien Legion years ago, back in the 80s. Great artist. Um, he was the most encouraging. He was uh, the first one to like actually take copies of my work and send it to Marvel for me and say, hey, keep your eye on this kid. And, and he was very encouraging, very sweet man. Um, when it comes to Comic-Cons, uh, I mean, for us as fans, um, we all discover different elements, which are definitely our favorite aspects. And I think for a lot of us, it's that sense of community and uh, coming together as a, a con culture, which is what yeah. we celebrate on this show. But what's your um, your favorite aspect of going to Comic-Con? I mean, I've, speak, I've spoken to a number of pros and as the conventions have got bigger and bigger, certainly over the last decade, yeah. Um, I mean, I spoke to Bill Sinkovich over the summer and he basically went, and went, I find it really difficult now because yeah. it is just so unwieldy. It's so much. Well, I have, so, I've been going yeah, to, yeah, for you, for I'd found it, I'm sorry, go ahead. There's a little bit of a no. lag, so I apologize yeah, just, yeah. if I'm not responding to the right part of the question. Um, I, I'd gone to San Diego Comic-Con, uh, since the, uh, mid eighties. So I, I remember the first Comic-Con I went to was at the old convention center and it was a very different experience watching it evolve from being this thing that really you just had to be a hardcore comics nerd to even know what San Diego comic-con was much less want to go. And then watching it evolve to where, and, and then in the early nineties, you could show up at the counter and get a badge the same day. If you had your, you, so you, you could drive down uh, for me, I, I live in California, so I could drive down for uh, on a lark and if we all just decided to go and still get in just by showing a comic book that had your name published in it that was enough to get you in the door it's very different now so it's it's so overwhelming and the fact that like all these media corporations and uh you know like a couple of years ago like oliver stone debuted a movie at comic-con and it had nothing to do with comics and i was just scratching my head like why <laughs> you know? and it, it, it it starts to feel like it should be called like you know tv movie comic-con you know like pop culture like they're starting to like some uh conventions are starting to call their shows like pop culture con or things like that which i think is a little more accurate because it's gotten harder and harder for comic book people to go to comic-con and get any attention or afford it so it's which is you know the greatest irony I think the the thing as well for many uh, comics pros as well is just because it's so so big and it's so unwieldy. Yeah. Um, people uh, they they often find it difficult to also even catch up with friends and, Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah. and colleagues. No, I'm overwhelmed most of the time. I'm there. I mean, I, I my favorite part of it. I think that's what the original question was. My favorite part of it is is seeing people in person and meeting people that I only interact with online or you know, people that I, I only see at Comic-Con, uh, you know, and then people who come up and cosplay my characters, that's always an excitement for me. I just, I can't get enough of that. It always makes me happy to see that uh, I've inspired something that people want to dress up as. That's that's very uh, gratifying. So I like, I think the people is my favorite part of it and also my least favorite part of it. <laughs> I think it's always ironic too that you have to take uh, people that are used to just being alone in their studios 364 days of the year meeting deadlines and then you thrust them into the public and you know it's it's a little bit of a uh going in the deep end of cold water but um 
at the same time, I always come out of it very energized and happy that I got to see people. So I, I missed think... that this year. And that was, this year was going to be a big one because we were going to be debuting boy season two there and they had some plans and I was going to be part of it. And yeah, you know, 2020. It, well, that is, yeah, 2020. Yeah, I think dot, 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 <laughs> exclamation point. Yeah, that's, that's pretty exactly. much it, absolutely. Um, we've got a whole bunch of comments in, and we're going to go through a number of those as well. Sure. Guy, everyone, if you do want a question in for Derek, do get those in, and we'll, uh, we'll get to them. Uh, although I will bring this up straight away. Uh, Scott Dumbier is what. Hey, Scott! Hello, Scott. How are you um, hoping that your fam you and family are well, sir. Yeah, so it's on fire, but so far we're okay. I'm like that little dog sitting in that fire room with this coffee. This is fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's that like at the moment? Where are, how close are you to the, the, the fires? Pretty close. But a couple of years ago, we had wildfires that, were, that we had to evacuate. So this is a little better because it's going the other direction. Um, and our sky is cloudy and overcast and smells of smoke, but you know, we don't have to evacuate yet. Fair enough, fair enough. So, any questions, guys, get them in and we'll do what we can to go through uh, the comments. Um, I think my favorite part of your Wikipedia bio, because uh, um, I, I mean, I, I know you, you work already, but I wanted to just have a look at what your Wikipedia bio read, and I like the reeling off of the early influences, uh, like Paul Smith. Yeah. George Perez, Neil yeah. Adams, Joe Kubert. Have you gone on to meet any of these icons? Yeah, worked with some. How has that how how has that changed your perception of their work? Uh, not. I mean, I still admire everybody I listed. Um, George Perez was one of the nicer uh, experiences I had. I had gotten hired to do a story uh, back in 1995 uh, that was written by Stan Lee and uh, was supposed to be inked by John Romita Sr. And they picked me to draw it. It was Aunt May's eulogy. It's in the Spider-Man super special. And so, you know, I'm drawing a Spider-Man story written by Stan Lee. Um, doesn't get a lot better than that. But uh, so I got to hard work on the pencils and midway my editor called me and said, uh, John Romita can't do the inking like he wanted to because of his schedule. And I was like, oh, okay, I understand. And I said, and I figured a lot of times the way things were at Marvel, then it's whoever was available would be the person they'd bring on. So I was expecting it to be that kind of situation again, like whoever was available to ink this thing would be inking it. But I've been working slavishly to make these pencils as tight and good as I could. Uh, and then I said, well, who is going to be inking it? And they said, George Perez. <laughs> I went, <laughs> because I have panels I can show you in my earliest comic books that I drew in school where I type paper I stapled ta uh, typing paper together and just went in and created comics just for the fun of it where I was looking at George Perez panels to learn how to draw basically so to have the guy that I basically feel taught me to draw one of them at least um, was super exciting but then also like it got really intimidated like oh my god George Perez is gonna be looking at my work so I sent the stuff in and in those days it was everything was FedEx you didn't have, we just pre very early internet so you didn't weren't able to scan and upload at least I wasn't and I uh, a couple days go by and then all of a sudden I got a, a phone call again from my editor who said uh, George Perez wants to talk to you about these pages and I was like of course, uh, you, know, he's, you know, I figured he's got some things to school me on. And so, all right. And he gave me his number and then I said, I'll call, I'll call him tomorrow. Well, then like 11 o'clock that night, 
my phone rings again and it's George Perez. He's on the other end of the phone. And I was like, Oh, Hey, and I'd never spoken to him before or met him or anything. So I didn't, and I thought he goes, I just want to talk to you about these pages. I'm inking. I'm like, okay. And again, I brace myself to be let down. And uh, he goes, this is some of the best work I've ever seen. You are really and, and for a half hour, at least we talked and he just lavished me in my work with praise. And I, and I, was just ah, and i kept telling him like you know, i learned to draw looking at your stuff teen titans was my book i you know and so it was a real mutual admiration society <laughs> but i and i never forgot that it's like that's the kind of thing when you're a kid when i was a kid dreaming of working in comics i never would have even put that in my possibilities like where this guy whose work i knew so intimately and read for so long and loved so much would call me up and go, you're really good. You know? So it was really a, really a highlight. So that was probably, that probably be one of the best experiences I've had meeting one of my heroes. And I, I can imagine that was one of those moments where you just take the phone and just take a deep breath and <laughs> exactly. before you kind of, before you dive right. into it. You got to get a thick skin if you want to, you know, make it as a creative person in any entertainment business. And so, you know, for comic books, it's like I I learned a long time ago that not everybody's going to like my work. And, you know, and, and I, I've kind of lived by a rule of like if three people like it, I've done a good job. And that's the editor, the writer and me. And that's it. I'd like after that, it's just out for the world to judge. And if you can't take it, you probably should do something else because it's, you know, for everybody that loves your work, there's going to be somebody who's going to say something nasty and, you know, but it doesn't really matter. Everybody's uh, got their opinions, you know. True. What, when it comes to your work, what do you like in terms of that sense of ownership in terms of once it's printed and done? Um, I think I asked Dave Gibbons about this once, about that sense of um, possibly going in and tightening a line or changing a panel, changing a detail. Are you somebody that can just let the book fly and let it yeah, go. I have. Well, you have to. once it's printed, it's done. You know, like there's a couple things I, I've had an opportunity to go back and tweak. But I mean, most of the time, you know, there's meeting a deadline is a big part of this job. So you can't be Rembrandt on every panel. It just isn't going to happen. You you do the best you can, and if you got your chops, you know what. For me, it's always is the story good? Can you read the story? Does the story affect you, or can you follow it? If that part of it is working, then I've done my job. But I don't sure. really spend a lot of time looking at my old work. No, because yeah. um, a couple of uh, projects wanna, have been. I want to fix it all. I want to. I want to. I'll. I'll work on it forever. <laughs> you know, nothing would ever leave my board if I actually, you know, had my way about it. Because it's just I always see something that could be a little bit more, a little bit, or where I've gone wrong. If I'm, you know, up at two o'clock in the morning and meeting a deadline there's going to be mistakes, you know, if, if it's, but as opposed to the work that I'm doing it, you know, f fresh and full of coffee, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the, the creative quote, um, it's paraphrasing from movies, um, uh, work isn't completed. It's just un unleashed. abandoned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good. And I learned early on in my, in my, uh, career, like good, sometimes good enough has to be. Fair enough. You know, and, um, and what I, you know, oftentimes like something that I put a lot of time into and a lot of care into, like that's the stuff that people just sort of like read on by. Whereas the, the ease, the stuff that I always surprised that somebody comes back and go, I love this panel. I'll be like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> it's always well, a weird disconnect. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, we are going to uh, talk about some of the, the, the work, because uh, especially when, uh, I mean, the first time that I experienced your work and saw your name uh, regularly was Justice League Europe, uh, which, oh, I mean, cool. uh, is a book, which, which is a book I think some would possibly like to see lost in the sands of time, but I bloody loved it, because I was straight, I uh, straight off the, yeah, uh, straight off the... Um, Dematius Giffen uh, JLI yeah. uh, stuff. So I was a real big fan of that kind of uh, writing. What Me was too. your experience of working on that book um, and working oh, for DC back then? It was really positive. That was actually one of my first, uh, that was my first ongoing monthly job uh, at DC. I'd done a couple of, I did a, a quarterly story with J.M. Dematis, which was a lot of fun. And it was like 30 pages, I think. And, um, and then they had me do a couple of segments for an annual and that all went well. So the editor really liked me and, and we got along very well. And so he said, hey, do you want to fill in on Justice League Europe for six issue Bart Sears is going to take a break. And I was like, absolutely, because I just and it was really fun because it happened to be a good moment in the whole overall storyline where JLI and uh, Justice League Europe were crossing over a bunch. So even though it was Justice League Europe, I actually was drawing Blue Beetle and Booster Gold, who were still two of my favorite characters to draw on Elongated Man and. You know, so I had a lot of fun drawing that because those are characters I had already loved. I was already a fan of the book. So to Adam Hughes and Kevin McGuire, uh, their artwork was just, mwah, and I was very inspired to follow in their footsteps. So, yeah, that was yeah. that was a really good experience overall. And the writer uh, was an old friend of mine. So it's like it was really, it really clicked. And then Keith Giffen, he would supply these breakdowns. Um, so I was like, I had these thumbnails to work from. And then years later, this was a very nice compliment. Like talk, just going back to like nice things that creators say to you. Uh, it was in the script. I worked with him on uh, the authority and Keith was writing and he said, uh, normally I would break this down, but I know Derek doesn't need it. And I was like, oh. nice. <laughs> that made nice. me feel when, when somebody, when somebody is so great a storyteller as Keith Gibbon tells you, you, you got this. That's that, that was a real feather in my cap. Yeah, because uh, I mean, the, it, it was around the time because I, I I'd left comics for a couple of years, and it was that run and that kind of period in comics which I kind of came back into it, uh, yeah. and I was tearing through all sorts of titles and JLI and JLE. I really gravitated towards, although it was around the time when they did Millennium, which I think nobody likes to really talk about a great deal as that crossover. Um, event of that particular time and around uh, that period, and I think your run was just shortly after that. But um, yeah, it was a good experience. Strange time comics. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely. I I love that. Um, I I miss comics that are actually those were funny and they were still good. They when the action and adventure would start, it would still be full of that. But the sense of humor that uh, Madison. Madison Giffen brought to it was, and of course, you know, I said McGuire and Adam Hughes, like incredible facial expressions. There was something really special about that run. Yeah. But I mean, it's also something that then also dovetails into other work uh, you've had down uh, the, in your career where you've had that. Um, I mean, the, we, we always talk about them as being funny, but it had the, a real edge to it as well. It was sharp yeah. humor. And it, it yeah. certainly can kind of, um, it, so you can kind of dovetail that into like transmit. Um, is that something that appeals to you? I mean, like you say, you oh, like, yeah. would love to see the return of kind of comics with a little bit more of a a, a tip to the shoulder of a, a bit of a, 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 f a fun element to it. 
Yeah, I know. I, I enjoy anything that I, I, I think a sense of humor is necessary because a lot of times stories, you know, there's a point where, uh, you know, when, when we were talking about when we first I spoke to Eric Kripke about the boys TV series, he asked me what was important to me, uh, which was really nice of him. And I said, you know, I really if you got to get the humor. If, if it's not funny, it's just going to be a long, hard slog. And I think people will tune out. Because the fun, the, the the humor is what made it work, and I think that you know that's the same case with Transmetropolitan it was genuinely funny stuff in there, and uh, you know, a, a good you know that, the the old way of doing stories like if you go back like Shakespeare, you know, there's a little bit of something of everything in a Shakespeare play. You get your comedy, you get your romance, you get your action scenes. Like it's all in there, and and yet it tells one cohesive story. So I think we lose the, I think sometimes people forget that comedy is the natural sister of, of tragedy, you know. Nicely put. Um, I also found around that time as well, it really did feel like there was a, a sense of freedom in terms of the writing and the artwork, uh, certainly on the DC titles uh, play um, with the, the, the books that were coming out. What was it like um, working at DC at that time? It was fun. Um, what was the, the what was the vibe in 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 putting books together? I, I really enjoyed both companies back in the '90s. They were, um, you know, they were very competitive with each other, Marvel and DC. And you know, you I'd find myself bouncing back and forth between both companies. And you know, both were fun. And a lot of the people that would work at Marvel would go work at DC, and vice versa, editorially and things like that. So, you know, it would take a little bit longer. Like by the time I was midway or winding down on Transmetropolitan that, you know, Marvel launched the Max series and we, they were able to take, you know, Nick Fury and the Punisher and these other characters that they could, and we could go all the way with them and they could swear and blood fly everywhere. You know, I guess is where my wheelhouse is. But uh, it's, I, I love that. I mean, I think there's a, a market for both. I think one of the mistakes people make within uh, we've made as an industry is um, it feels like when something hits, everybody kind of like runs to that watering hole until it's dry. And I don't rather than just making a lot of different watering holes, because I think that, you know, there's a whole you can do a line of kids comics. You can do a line of alternative comics. You can do mainstream superheroes. You can do mainstream superheroes with an edge. Like it's kind of limitless, but I think people want this kind of a, a cohesiveness to everything that just doesn't really fit creativity. When you try to make creativity uh, align with somebody's model, I think you end up stifling it more than you encourage it. And what I loved about comics when I was growing up uh, as a kid, and you know, if you looked at the spinner rack for Mar you know, Marvel and DC titles were all interspersed. And the cover and the art would just jump out at you if you wanted, you know, you didn't have to know what was going on 15 issues before to get in and start reading. And everybody had their own kind of personality, like Frank Miller's Daredevil didn't look anything like John Byrne's X-Men. And those two didn't look like Walt Simonson's Thor, but they all existed within the same universe. And that was the same thing with the DC titles. You know, we, when Frank Miller came out with like Batman or your year one shortly after he had done daredevil's born again i mean that was elevating these characters to a level that now was reflected in the films and the tv shows very well and is reaching a much broader audience as a result but back then it was like controversial and new and 
it caused a lot of you know kerfuffle i guess <laughs> yeah I, I, I remember i remember the letters pages uh, <laughs> <laughs> they went they went down well yeah letters we've got, the, we've got the, a couple of comments coming in a couple of questions uh, from fans and uh, followers uh, we've got uh, leanne d saying uh, my biggest regret is not getting direct to sign my boys and transmit book last uh, san diego comic-con my daughter had a panel that she had to be at Family, what can you do with them? Honestly, I did the right thing. I'll be at future shows if we have them. <laughs> well, yes, uh, we'll get into that. Wherever we're allowed to leave our homes again, I will. See yeah. yeah. Bunyan Snipes joining us. Uh, Kevin Feige should use uh, Derek's version of Wolverine as a template for the MCU version. There you go. There's a, 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 a well, if, if it makes a difference, I, I was told James Mangold was uh, used my Wolverine, so. He yep. came and bought some original art from us, and I found out that his uh, he, he that was part of his influence for his Wolverine movies. So I was very proud of that. Cool. Uh, Solicitor Smeg, having George Perez loving your art has got to be akin to having God be impressed by your praying. Pretty much. That's, that's <laughs> pretty much. And uh, this is a question I actually was going to ask a little bit uh, later on, but uh, Marcy Betts is kind of beating me to it um what lesser known titles or other works that you are proud of that you wish more people would read oh, that's a good question uh i did a book called ballistic uh for black mass studios a few years ago and it's, it's sort of disappeared into the ether um but it's probably the best work i had done since transmetropolitan it was complete world building completely original characters bonkers story by my friend adam egypt mortimer has gone on to be a uh, pretty successful horror writer movie director um, and yeah, it was, it was that, that's probably the work that I wish more people were aware of and Oliver, which I'm doing currently with, uh, Gary Witta, but it's been a slow release cause it's a labor of love and I've got to kind of, it's with indie books, you kind of have to supplement your, your income when you're working on an indie book. Cause there's, you know, until it's done, it's not a lot of, uh, upfront money to live on. So. I am a Gary Witta fan. Um, I, I want to, uh, yeah, well, this is true, um, but I want to read Oliver, but um, I think uh, we'll, we can kind of get into this as well, the fact that um, in 2020, when funds are so tight, um, for yeah. and many people are having to get real picky and choosy about the, the, the titles they're, they're, they're buying off the shelf, and uh, they, it, I can imagine for a creative and someone working in the industry, it, it must be very difficult to look at the industry and the landscape at the moment and think that people are having to pick and choose uh, the books and you're having to kind of fight for that landscape. Yeah, I don't, um, I never try to think of it as competition because that way lies madness. Um, I like to think of, again, it kind of comes back to the, what I was saying earlier, where three people need to be happy with the work and the editor and the writer and me. And if I can check off those three boxes, do the best I can do, I believe that when I'm enjoying the work or if I'm proud of it, then it, people will find it. And uh, I'm very excited. I got a book coming out uh, next on September 4th or 1st, I think, uh, but Hellblazer Rise and Fall. It's gonna be the black label book with uh, Tom Taylor. And we've been working hard on that and I'm proud of it. I think it's gonna be good stuff um tom's great the script is great so it's like you know people like constantine it's my first time really drawing him extensively i did a little bit for deceased but um he's a character that fits in my wheelhouse i am a fan 
Um, I run a UK attendees group um, where we choose logos which are British relevant uh, to go inside the San Diego Comic-Con logo. And I've got a, a John Constantine <laughs> in, a in the logo. Oh, no, I'm a fan. And um, I, I, I mean, bouncing off the, the question I, I put, uh, I read the uh, Cy Spurrier blog post uh, this week, which where he was absolutely heartbroken about the uh, the cancellation of uh, Hellblazer and that yeah and that whole landscape at DC at the moment and uh, seeing how um, creatives are being treated and also just the way that um, the industry is going at the moment what's your 2020 thoughts? yeah 2020 absolutely I mean, we should have a balloon or something um, what, what's your current um, thoughts on the industry so like as somebody who uh, writes comics for um, many of the different publishers and that were getting your work out there we were seeing a, a real shift and a, a temporal uh, kind of um so like a shifting of uh, the, the plates when it comes to uh, the industry at the moment yeah. um how you what was your thoughts on it and um where do you feel that the industry will be going in the future it's hard to say i mean i don't know how much this is going to impact me personally um i'm i'm hopefully gonna keep getting work i don't know how they're gonna expand or contract the line or what's happening i'm mostly concerned for my friends that have lost their jobs because a lot of people the, whose names you read in those articles i know personally and very you know this is not a great time to be unemployed uh not there ever is but this is particularly harrowing um you know i i always worried a while ago that when the movies and TV shows became the focus that comics would suffer, even though it's draw driven the sales up more. Um, but what I think happens and has happened in the past, I think we get myopic as, uh, as a fandom and as, uh, uh, people who are creative that I think there's a point where you look at this as if this bubble in time is all that's ever been. And there was once upon a time, when I like to say, you know, like the Lone Ranger and Tarzan were like the biggest characters out there. They were the Batman. They were the Spider-Man of their time because those characters hadn't come along yet when those, when those guys were huge. So, you know, it's sort of like it moves on. And, yeah. some, and then once upon a time, EC Comics was the biggest publisher out there, you know, and now they're just a memory. Uh, even Mad Magazine is no more. Yeah. So what happens is creative people are going to keep creating. And we don't know what's next. And that's, you know, it's it's very easy to look back and go, oh, my God, it's all coming off an edge. But I've been in comics since the early or the mid 80s. And I've watched three different bubbles uh, expand and, and pop. And then every time it happened, I was told this is the end of comics. It's it's done. And somehow we're still here. Yeah. So, and, and like I said, the fact that San Diego Comic-Con is the biggest thing out there, like that all the movie and TV people, everybody wants it, all the retailers, they all want to be a part of that thing that we basically created. That says that wherever this is going to go, it's going to just evolve into something that we don't, maybe we don't recognize yet. But I don't believe it's ever going to end unless people just put their pencils down and turn their brains off and it's all over you know but i i more worry about the struggle and the ability to get noticed in a world where there's so much content you know it, it's uh it's not an easy place to relax into 
but again, I've never really relaxed. So <laughs> I, uh, my, I've always been like a shark and made sure that there's something, you know, in front of me at all times. So I just right. hope that, you know, keep feeding, keep swimming. I just hope that, um, I, again, I just worry about the people that are, are losing their jobs in the midst of this pandemic. That's, it's, that's harrowing and, and heartbreaking. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the recent Mark Bernardin um, quote where he turned around and said, same drill uh, as what you say about the, the, the cyclical nature of this all. And yeah. people talk about the end of the direct market, but at the end of the day, they've been saying that for a, a number of years. And uh, things. It, 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 I think the thing that's different this time around is we're seeing an evolution on how creatives are actually um, reaching out to uh their fans in terms yeah. of um going uh creator owned also going um crowdfunding and making that real direct connection yeah and and that's an exciting new world i mean that that wasn't even a possibility when i was a kid and when i was you know i, I i'm really happy that i did the creator owned books that i did when i did them you know because i had to roll the dice on transmetropolitan because i was being offered a spider-man title at the same time but i I, I, you know, I made the choice to do something original, and I'm glad that I did. And the same thing with the boys. It's like it was, you know, when we created the boys, it was a chance to. I could have stuck in and did keep doing what I was doing, but I really miss doing something original. And I like doing original titles. So the fact that now there's a opportunity to for original titles to come out without having all the, uh, I mean, you got to do a lot more of the work yourself, but without the the sticky fingers that end up on your IP. This is you know. true. Uh, we're going to come back to that phrase in a second. Um, uh, the uh, the other thing about the crowdfunding as well is that you end up becoming, uh, you actually have to kind of put on the uh, the BT Barnum uh, hat and yeah. become salesman for your for your work. Yeah. And I can imagine for a lot of creatives um, on the, I mean they obviously they sit on the other side of a, a artist alley table and they have to be some form of a salesman but I, I i can imagine it's still something that's difficult to uh to kind of get your head around is it something that you can do is it something that you feel that you can get into selling selling yourself basically uh i don't i don't know if i'm very good at that to be perfectly honest i i, I don't i'm not that much i'm not that um gregarious in the first place to where i i feel comfortable going hey look at me and i feel like it, it feels phony because everybody wants you to buy their stuff. And I don't know. I, I think I, I, I'm a firm believer that if I do good work, it'll sell itself. And um, I, that's why I enjoy working with companies like DC and, you know, like, cause there's people that are employed to do that. Yeah. And all I have to do is provide them really good material. And I just do my best to do that on a regular basis. But, um, you know, if I had to, I guess I would, I, so far I'm not there, but, um, I, I see the temptation. I've, there's things that I've wanted to kickstart. There's things that I've wanted to, I know I'm interested in Patreon. If it means that I can have a better relationship with the people that genuinely like my work, that sounds intriguing. But uh, most of the time, my day is filled up with just creating the artwork. So I don't, you know, I might have to evolve out of that. But at this point, that's where I want my, my attention to be. Fair enough. Um, the question I was going to ask uh, was, what is your immediate visceral reaction when you hear the term IP? Um, <laughs> my, my head went to something dirty. <laughs> 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 uh, 
too many beers. Um, no, I, I, I think, well, yeah, it's, it's intellectual property. Um, I, we stand on the shoulders of giants who never got their, their due in their day. And it, the, like music, rock and roll and R&B, it's like there's a long list of, of just tragic stories of people who wrote that song that you got married to and couldn't afford to pay their rent. You know, for every uh, Mike Magnola, there's a Bill Finger, you know, and that's a sad fact of our industry is that it's it's like if you don't, you know, most of the people I know can't afford good lawyers and don't know what they're getting into and and unfortunately it, it leaves a legacy of uh people getting swindled and yeah you know, i i got kind of lucky and i figured out what i was doing wrong so uh you know the boys has been very gratifying but the the reality is like i don't think any creator there should be a basic rule where if you created something you should get your fair share you know especially when it you know you look at how siegel and schuster were treated back in their day and it that's a that's a tragedy yeah no absolutely uh we've got uh, leanne d that's asking uh, he, uh she wants to hear about working with garth ennis we, we, we'll get there uh but certainly i think we'll talk about um the, the working on, on the boys but i also i still like to start uh with uh, transmet uh transmet phone which um is just uh, one of my personal favorites and it seems like a book that has so much going on and so many layers that I can imagine there was quite a bit of prep um, going into that book. Um, it, I mean, it feels like there's so much framework before <laughs> even going in. How, 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 how long was it between the first mention of the story between um, uh, yourself and getting that first issue to print? Well, that's funny because like what you just described, it was the polar opposite. Really? That book right, was okay. almost completely like spontaneous. Like we, wow. we were always so up against the deadline and uh, Warren would send me script like in piecemeal. And in the beginning, I mean, it, the, the scripts were always brilliant, but as he got more popular and busy, I'd get a little bit of script. I draw those pages and then I'd wait and then I'd get some more and I draw them real fast and I wait. So a lot of that, I didn't know what was coming next. I didn't have a whole bunch of scripts to read into to plan. So on top of that, and then it was like right up against the deadline at all times. Cause we did, we were about six issues in and on a pretty good uh, pace. And then they pulled the plug out from us uh and went from helix to vertigo and then we were right back in it again so it was always kind of a mad scramble but it was amazing because we kept the same team pretty much from issue four or five on and rodney ramos and clem robbins and nathan iring and i like we were they were always on top of their game but we went through a, a slurry of editors um who because the industry was all over the place at the time uh, and so our editors would leave and go over to Marvel or move on to other things. We'd get a new editor and, and they always wanted to fix the schedule, which we couldn't do because Warren hadn't written ahead. So, um, <laughs> they would say, we're going to bring in a fill-in artist. I go, there's no scripts. Like if you want, you know, if, if you bring in a fill-in artist, there's going to be nothing for them to draw. So I kept trying to push to ink my own work. Cause then I would at least like be able to fill the hours out a little bit more, but I didn't want to take Rodney off the book cause he was doing an amazing job. 
Um, so it was always like this kind of push pull, but a lot of that was just me staying up all night and creating stuff in the moment and whatever would hit my brain. What wow. I loved about that book was that it was a world that I could just kind of do whatever I wanted to in it because it was, it was essentially our world. Like Warren and I, I got, I had a, a real clear idea of what Warren wanted and Warren got less descriptive as we went on because he was like, no, no, you got this. Like it was, so I had more freedom to just sort of put whatever I wanted to on the page uh, as it, as the impulse struck me. And that was, it was wild fun. I really enjoyed that book for that reason. Like it was, it's one of the most um, spontaneous and creative things. I don't think I could do it again today because I'm much older and I don't have the same energy level as I did when I was creating Transmetropolitan. But, um, but back, but then I was, you know, as young and had my own place and didn't, uh, have any children, or, <laughs> you know, it was just, I could stay up all night, sleep when I wanted. And just all I had to do was meet the deadlines. And I did my best to do that, but it was a very spontaneous creative endeavor, but it was always fun playing, uh, creating with Warren because he, I, I draw something into the background just off the top of my head and he'd pick up on it and then work it into the story. And, and that was always uh, a great way of like throwing a ball back and forth. Like creatively, we, we would, feed off each other creatively, which is, I think, what you should do in a creative relationship. Of course, absolutely. Um, I, I, I've often read uh, interviews that it was, for yourself, one of the most fulfilling collaborative efforts as well, yeah. which is uh, really cool. Um, it's a book that when I read it, um, I mean, it's challenging authority, it's challenging society. And when I read it, I think of that, the young one quote, um, the Johnny, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? And yeah, there's okay. that, that real sense of uh, sort of uh, real challenge. Uh, was it a, a book that broadened your worldview in terms of society and politics and yeah, authority? Absolutely. Or was that was that always there? No, no. I, I, I mean, I had read Hunter S. Thompson books uh, going in. So when he told me when, when Warren approached me with the idea, I was very open to it because I love that gonzo journalist uh, idea already. But it was, you know, I learned a lot reading uh, what Warren had really gone deep into and it made me more so socially and politically aware uh, and to this day where I feel like it's my job as a citizen to be informed even if we don't agree on the politics we need to know what's happening and it's important to call out you know misinformation and make sure that you're you know as close to a real source as you can be because what I didn't predict with, with Transmetropolitan is that, you know, newspapers and journalists would kind of get lost to the ether of the Internet, which is sort of what's happening now. Like we live in our own information bubbles and that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, do you think that a comic can be that confrontational and that angry in 2020? I mean, I, I personally feel that it's almost it's required, but yeah, there, seem, there, there, there seems to be a real sense of okay let's not let's just see where everything i think we're still three and a half years in we're still waiting waiting for the shoe to drop yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it and again i i don't know because i think there's some great work coming out now and i seems like everybody's got an edge and i don't know if it's just my perspective on it or if that's what's really happening but um you know everything being perception but I, I feel that there's a place for it, um, but I feel like there's less, it's kind of hard to be outraged anymore. It's like there's outrage fatigue, uh, you know, where everything's outrageous, everything's in your face, everything. It didn't, didn't help as well that when the outrage happened, it didn't really make a difference. 
Right, because everybody just is exhausted. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of the part of the strategy. I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like, you know, how often can you be just jaw dropped? You know, your jaw eventually just lays on the floor. <laughs> this is very, very true. You know, you have to re- have a moment to reset your jaw for it to draw drop again. <laughs> but uh, and I don't think we've got that moment. I think everything's just, you know, I think I think we're in for a wild ride. I'm just afraid of where this slides to. Yeah. I um, think it's important to be involved, though. I think it's important to be aware and don't let them wear you down. Sure. Well, that kind of dovetails into uh, my next question, because um, what I, I enjoy certainly following you on social media is that you are somebody that's embraced uh, the notion of being very socially and politically engaged on your social media. I feel like I but, have to be. Yeah, absolutely. But what's the challenge of putting yourself out there in that regard? as somebody in comics when you have kind of like the, the creative stuff to talk about as well and balancing between the two. I, you know, I, maybe it's, uh, I, I probably shouldn't butter that side of the bread on the same piece of bread, but, um, I don't know. I, I feel that if you followed my work, uh, mostly cause of trans metropolitan, the boys is very controversial when it comes out. It's like, I don't, if you like my stuff, you kind of know where I'm coming from before you, come over to my my Twitter feed but um and I don't I really don't think I say anything that's unfair or and I don't I don't attack people and I mostly quote things that I'm reading and I see a thread come together I put threads together because to me that's just facts if there's pictures and there's court cases and things like that it's kind of like the part of me that loves spider jerusalem uh that you know i want the truth and i think we've all become spider jerusalem yeah right and that's amazing to me that uh, he came from my brain meat and he's out in the world now but um you know and warren's voice is so strong in that book i i feel that you know we all need a spider jerusalem and i don't know that there is one or maybe there's many i can't tell it's like there's Either there's a lot of spiders or there's none. I can't, <laughs> it feels like there's one or the other. I can't tell. Sure. Uh, when it comes to producing something which has that kind of impact, like uh, Transmet, I, I like the fact that you call it. You do call it the full title of Transmet Metropolitan as well, because there's that whole um, what do you call Star Trek Next Gen? Is it Next Gen? The Next Generation? <laughs> TNG? I like the fact that you call it Transmet Metropolitan. Well, I call it Transmet a lot too. But... <laughs> and also, also with the boys when they are books which have left such uh, an impact. How much pressure on that uh, does it? put on you on your projects moving forward again i i there's no there's no magic recipe other than what your artistic integrity is if you have your if if your goal is to do good work then you do good work you know that's that's really what it comes down to i know what i'm doing when i'm producing crap and when i'm producing (laughs) good and i try not to let myself get lazy I try not to like, you know, go, ah, that sucks, but I'm just going to, I don't care. I'm getting paid. I never really take that attitude. I always kind of want it to be just so, you know, because I, 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 again, if I like it, if I look back through it and I go, this is a comic book I would read, uh, this is a comic book I'd pay for, that's the best I can do. Fair enough. Uh, right then, Leanne. Right then, uh, Aaron. Here we go. It's your turn now. Um, talking about the boys, um, because it is a book which is very much um, in the forefront right now with the uh, successful uh, launch of season two uh, and with the success on uh, Amazon. Um, it's uh, if you could just talk about uh, the that book 
Uh, and certainly in, in regards to, I mean, in, you talk about Transmet and how that was very fast and a very rapid uh, evolution from concept to page. What was that like for the boys? Uh, it was, uh, we had a lot more time to develop the boys um, as I was under contract with uh, Marvel at the time uh, Ennis first approached me about it. So we had a lot more back and forth and uh, time to evolve the characters. And it went through a few different incarnations of what we thought the book would be before it became what it was. And then we ultimately wanted it to be its own universe, but it was originally uh, envisioned as the boys were going to exist in the DC universe. And then we would, but then we, as we started exploring the concepts, we realized there's no way we're going to be able to do the kind of stories we want to do. And uh, what I really loved about what Ennis had thought through on it was that he was taking little bits and pieces from different existing worlds. Like he's a big, um, James Elroy fan. And so he was a little bit Hollywood uh, confidential and it was a little bit, um, you know, and stories of the casting couch. That's really uh, that there's a scene in the issue three where it's Queen Maeve and Starlight and she they encounter each other in the bathroom and uh, she's like, oh, I'm such a big fan. And that's actually based on a real um, interaction between Betty. Uh, uh, sorry. Betty Davis and Marilyn Monroe. And uh, this is how my head works. I almost said Betty Rubble. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something like Betty White. I thought, no, 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 that's, no. that is not Betty. That doesn't sound like Betty White to me. But Rubble is the name that comes to mind. Not Betty Davis, but Betty Rubble, you know, because she's hanging out at the Brown Derby um, with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> but, uh, so that was where my head was going. But uh, but that's that was based on a real interaction between them where, um, can I swear on this? Of course, go for it. So it's like she says, oh, I'm such a big fan. And Betty Davis is fixing her makeup and just goes, fuck off. Leaves. <laughs> and Marilyn Monroe's like all starstruck. And Betty Davis is like, you're just here to eat my lunch. You know, like you're the next thing. And I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not playing that game with you. So, and then that, so that kind of backbiting and like, that's sort of what, uh, and it's brilliantly brought into the superheroes where, um, and for me, I grew up loving the DCU still do. And, uh, you can't see it, but I'm surrounded by action figures right now. And, uh, what makes me happy is those are some of my earliest childhood memories is Batman, you know, like things like that from when I was very, very young. Um, so, but Garth didn't grow up in that kind of world. He grew up with 2000 and AD and Bino and Judge Dredd and war comics and things like that. Like that was his, so he kind of came at the Marvel and DCU with like, he, he couldn't help but see the silliness of it. Yeah, I, I couldn't see the silliness of it. So what I ended up doing, what I loved about doing, working on the boys is I, regardless of what they were saying and doing, I was still getting to create original superheroes and do my own thing, you know, and I like that kind of contrast. Like for me, that is a good story. I, I loved it in Watchmen. I loved Brat Pack when Rick Beach did it. Um, you know, there, we weren't the first ones to this concept, but we, but, but the, the heart that Ennis put at the, at the, at the core of it, it wasn't just exploitive. It really was a story that he needed to tell. And uh, that comes through very clearly in that book. And I, so as much as it's outrageous, it's also got a great heart to it. And the characters, uh, it, it changes the idea of what it means to be a hero. It changes the idea of, you know, uh, what you, believing what you see as opposed to, again, same core thing in Transmetropolitan, getting to the truth. 
I mean, you, it's interesting that you mention Watchmen in, in that, that sentence because I feel that um, the boys came out at a very similar time to when Watchmen did, when there was this period of um, superheroes in superhero comics being very much deified, very much, very much put on a pedestal. Uh, there was this sense of there needs to be some kind of leveling, that there needs to be a, a, a humanization of, uh, of yeah. these uh, of these characters, and that's what I feel uh, yourself and Garth brought uh, certainly to the boys. Um, can I ask when the first time Simon Pegg uh, uh, talked to you? And, yeah, uh, what was his first reaction? That was that was a very funny, uh, and, and I, I always preface this like, don't try this at home. We got very lucky that Simon Pegg is a good human being. Um, I had put out, I had seen him in Spaced, which hadn't even been released in the U.S. Uh, Shaun of the Dead hit big the same convention. I was out promoting the boys, number one. There were people walking around as Shaun from Shaun of the Dead with the cricket paddle and the blood all over. So it was a it was sort of a quick rise of his uh, people being aware of him. But when I was watching Spaced, uh, Gary Witta had given me the the show on VHS and I loved it. I just thought and I was trying very hard to come down uh, with a with a finished picture of Huey like what in uh, we originally were going to based Huey is actually a friend of Garth's uh, Hugh Campbell is a real person and they do call him Wee Huey and but I didn't have any photos of him and I hung out with him a few times but I didn't have any photos of him and because it was you know internet wasn't what it is now I just never got around to getting these pictures so I was trying to come up with like my memory of what Hugh looked like um, but it never quite landed every time I draw him he looked too mean or he didn't you know he needed this innocence that I couldn't put my finger on and it wasn't until I was watching Simon Pegg in space I'm like that's it that his face his expressions the way he uh, moved i'm like and then also he was playing an aspiring comic book artist working in a comic book shop so i'm like and he had simon bisley art in the show i'm like this guy loves comics i mean i didn't think he'd mind i didn't think he'd ever see it um <laughs> so it wasn't until like the original designs were released that uh i think it was rich johnston over at bleeding cool picked up on the fact like that's simon Pegg, <laughs> and he sent it over and then i was like oh no you know am i gonna have to read <laughs> Shit, i've been spotted <laughs> yeah well i didn't really think much of it until i realized oh this guy's like famous you know and uh he might have a feeling about being drawn into a comic and so i got this email uh that in the subject line it said me huey and uh he wrote me this very nice letter said no i'm chuffed he goes this is wonderful I loved your work. He loved both of our work and he was like really excited to be drawn into a comic. So again, don't try this at home. It could have been a nightmare, but because he was so willing to embrace it, um, we ended up becoming friends and uh, it was really wonderful to all these years later because then there was going to be a movie in 2008 that never got off the ground. And that would have been a great time for Simon to play Huey. Uh, but he, he started to feel he was too old for the role. And so when the TV show came out, I was really like, are you talking to Simon at all? Because I always feel like that character doesn't have to be age specific. But then Jack Quaid is so good in it. And Jack and I <laughs> are friends. It, you know, it was really wonderful to go on set and uh, see Simon and Jack together. And I sat with Simon for a while and talked about how happy I was that at least, at least it finally came full circle and he got a role in the show and got something for his generosity all those years ago. Absolutely. Um, he, obviously, Simon I see, uh, is, is, you could say, is the easily recognizable direct comparison with Wee Huey. 
Um, who, who were you else? Who else were you thinking of when it came to your original casting for the original book? Who was? I mean, Robert Robert Shaw was our inspiration for Butcher, uh, the late great Robert Shaw. Uh, everybody else is kind of out of my head. Um, the Frenchman was a little bit influenced by. Um, oh, I'm blanking on his name. This is why I told you I needed to have coffee before this. <laughs> it's not helping me at the moment. Um, but he ended up. But I ended up basing him on my friend Christoph because actually all the cast of Transmetropolitan are all based on friends of mine. Because right. I love to take real people and photograph them and you know use them for the, the early drawings and then I, until I kind of get a hang for what they look like because that way I'm always returning to the same place rather than chasing a phantom in my head. Fair enough. Uh, I mean. I know we mentioned and talked before uh, we came on air, but I'm, we've got the question from Leanne, uh, and we'll kind of we'll circle around the outside of it in terms of working with Garth on the book. Um, I mean, what was the relationship uh, in terms of putting the book together, um, and um, certainly how that evolved as the books went on, because the books certainly evolved um, down the, the the line and the the way that the the tone changed uh, throughout the course of the volumes. Um, what was the relationship with uh, Garth on, on the board? Uh, Garth's very professional and gets his scripts in, and they're very tight, and he knows what he wants. And it was uh, in the beginning, we were a lot more collaborative. And as it went on, we uh, it became more just me producing the work. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Liam D, that is one of the pivotal panels of the book um, that really cemented my love for the boys. Uh, talking about the panel we talked about earlier, I have every issue plus all the trades and the hardcovers. We have a fan in the house, baby. Thank uh, you. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of uh, the books and how your work has evolved over the years, I'm really curious how you feel your audience um, has changed over the years as, as they've grown up with you and grown up with the, the, uh, the, the books. Um, obviously, you have that angry young man that's reading Transmet, and then you've got a slightly older, angry young man reading the boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously you've got the, this audience which is just um, evolving and changing over the years. Uh, not only the ones reading your books, but also the one, uh, ones that are reading comics in general. Um, I mean, we're seeing a time when the, the industry seems to be chasing a, a much younger audience and the, all the, the all-ages markets and kind of the, the YA kind of stuff. Um, how's that changed your feelings on the industry with the the audience um growing up with your work uh that reminds me of the, the song everything old is new again because that's how everything just seems to like i said it, it it sort of goes like a pendulum i think right now we're in a very dark period societally and everybody's scared and angry and we're all off in our political camps and nobody seems to know which way is up. And I think uh, comics are probably steering back towards being entertainment in a way that when things are good, you want a darker story. You want the angrier story because everything in your real world is, is pretty benign. So I think that's on its head at the moment. And so I think um, with the expansion of these characters to more TV and movies uh, and they're wildly successful and very well done. I mean, as a fan, I'm so happy to finally see movies that reflect the, the source material accurately and lovingly as opposed to what I got in the 90s with the rubber-eared Captain America. And, <laughs> you know, the Punisher couldn't have a skull on his chest because one of the producers thought that was too comic booky. Yeah. So I'm glad to be on the other side of that. However, I, I 
once theorized when I was very young before video games looked anything like they do that the video games were only going to get better and better. And eventually, if you can be Spider-Man, why would you want to read Spider-Man? And yeah. I think we're kind of entering that phase. So what I think is important going forward is that we, again, once upon a time, there was no Spider-Man. And at that time, there were very popular pop culture figures. Like I said, the Lone Ranger, Tarzan, Flash Gordon was a big deal once upon a time. So we're entering that phase again. I think we're going to get maximum exposure with the popular characters now until they're not popular anymore. Sure. You know, and that might be 20, 30 years from now. I'm always amazed by what, what the most amazing part of my career is, is to be part of the generation that got kind of handed off these characters. And I got my turn to influence them and be a part of them because they were my childhood heroes they were the, the characters that i used to draw for fun in my sketchbooks and you know on, the, on my binder and things like that when i was in school and then i got to actually work on the i'm working on these characters you know um i, I got to be the artist on wolverine for a while and that's a big deal because it's sort of there's a responsibility there and i but then somebody after me is going to get them and that's fine too but the best thing anybody could do with this industry is to say creatively on fire because if you because the next wolverine hasn't been created yet you know the next batman is still being dreamed up and it, you, that might be you yeah you might have that idea and you don't know that unless you're you know following your bliss and and trying to create something good but i think the the mistake that we make as an industry repeatedly is that we go all and again it's the watering hole metaphor as i said like everybody just goes for that one watering hole instead of finding the river yeah well i mean i don't think you're going to find many batman or uh, spider-man in my head uh, considering that you cost could possibly just blow in my ear and use my skull, <laughs> skull as a flute uh, well, so there's, know, there's no like there's no but if somebody somebody out there is somebody out there gonna be, you know there was once upon a time there was no john wick you know now there's a john wick He's awesome. You know, it's just like they say, and that's just because, but what I think is good about the industry and as a whole is that as harrowing as it is to see what's happening um, with the big two for how things are going to shift, there's image comics, there's Ahoy comics, there's IDW, there's Black Mass. There's a lot of publishers out there just ready to pick up the slack if there's all this talent out there that just needs an outlet there's there's new publishers that would love to get a bite of that and valiant is doing great stuff you know it's it's a matter of just we move on and yeah. once upon a time in our industry it was dominated by ec and charlton and uh gold key was a huge publisher they had the star trek license you know those are three names that probably mean nothing to the people listening right now, unless you found um, back issue bins, you know. I, they're a pretty they're a pretty clued up bunch. You'd you'd be surprised. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in general, though, I mean, if you yeah, I know you don't mean. think about them much anymore because now it's dominated by these two publishers, and you know they've got great properties and these are great characters, and there's still plenty more stories to tell. But you know, the next thing is going to happen. I don't think the industry goes away. I think it morphs. Sure. I mean, I'm, what I'm really excited about is a number of the publishers you mentioned there and also the likes of like TKO and um, yes. uh, publishers that are doing something different with distribution and as well. And the way that the, the way that they're releasing 
looks as yeah, different. I think that's really great. exciting. We're, we got this brave new world of the internet, how you can access, you know, publishing is changing uh, as we speak, because like I said, with the COVID and the lockdown and shutdown of all these retail stores, uh, it, that's been a blow. And on top of it, you know, there's this opportunity to, to break that old model. But when I remember when the current model was a brand new thing, and you got your comic books at the grocery store or at the pharmacy. And it wasn't until I found a comic book store that I knew I could get back issues. But uh, up until then, it was just like all the comics that I had just lived in a world by themselves. So that model changed. And then it became the standard becomes the, you know, the new thing becomes the standard. And then something new happens. And I, you just have to believe that if you're creative and you're paying attention, something else will come along i don't know if it's i don't know what this moment means nothing makes sense in 20 <laughs> I, I find it really interesting that um for decades uh we've been well yeah for decades we've been thinking that um entertainment is going to transform into uh some form of the matrix where we're just going we're going to go in and we're going to um sort of like be um away from our own physical bodies it's already player one uh, and in 2020, we've got it. It's just called Animal Crossing. <laughs> I find that really bizarre. That that's yeah, the... no, between Animal Crossing, my son is huge into VR, and he's got the. I've played VR with him a couple of times. I'm like, this is dangerous. This is yeah. the, this is the future. You know, I, I can imagine a world where we just we can't go outside and we just live in a, you know, self-contained bubble and food gets piped into our mouths from a hose and we just game all the time we don't even know there is a real world yeah. the good news is as well uh, your morpheus for 2020 is gary witter uh, so congratulations <laughs> on gary yeah, and getting that, that casting talk yeah about being on top of that thing <laughs> um in terms of the uh, what's happened and the like, like i say we were talking about the evolution of the industry um in terms of the fact that you've been burnt by so many aspects of the industry over the years on occasion do you feel that the industry is some kind that some way deserves um some of what it's going through that it, this is the mainstream comics kind of reaping the whirlwind as it were i i don't i have a hard time putting any kind of karmic justice on it it's just business you know the end of the day it's like you know, for every one time I've dealt with somebody who wasn't ethical, I've got 15 people that were wonderful. And I've had, you know, I've had far more blessings in this business than I've ever had problems. It's, it's just, you know, it comes down to the individual and how they conduct themselves most of the time. And so I, I don't really know if there's a karmic justice to this. I know wonderful retailers. I know, uh, I've worked in every aspect of comics at one point or another in my life. I used to work at a, I worked out at Diamond Distributors when I was drawing my first book, Space Beaver, and uh, just so I could make ends meet. And I also worked behind the counter at a comic book shop for a little bit. And so I've seen a lot of different, and then I said, I'll have, like, I have many good friends that are retailers now. So I've seen it from a very different prism of just a guy who produces comic book content for the world. I see the whole machination. But uh, it's kind of like saying, you know, did the airline industry bring this on themselves when you've had a lot of successful flights where you didn't die in a plane crash? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, maybe your maybe your luggage gets lost once in a while, but the whole industry does it deserve to suffer? I don't know. I mean, everybody's greedy, and everybody, 
could do a better job of being more generous human beings. That's, that's just wherever you are and whatever sure. you do, we, uh, you know, but I'm going to start to sound like an old hippie. No, um, you, 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 I, it's okay. We've got the, we've got the Grateful Dead playing in the background. I think we've, we, we've got, we've got this, so we're all, we're all good. Um, we need to find our way back to what, what makes comics wonderful. And that I truly love about the industry as a whole, but more so than the industry, the medium. What I yeah. love about the medium is it's infinite. It's words and pictures. You can put that together in any combination and make magic. And that is absolutely the lifeblood of why I think we have an industry. I think that's why San Diego Comic-Con is huge. I think that's why more movies and TV shows are finding their way to the source material. And I just think the more inclusive those worlds get where you know, I'm really grateful that I get to be a part of the boys television show. I'm not involved in a super huge way, but the creators and the producers have been absolutely wonderful to me. And I get, and I love just being in proximity to it because I'm seeing this thing that, you know, is half my brainchild coming to life. And the cast is wonderful. The people are wonderful. And it's been a really gratifying experience. But part of that is because they love the comics. They love them. And they've been vocal about that. And so when I think the source material and the, the adaptation work like that, you get a better end product. And the fact that this boy, the show is huge, I think, reflects that. Well, I mean, let's let's talk about the voice and uh, the the television adaptation because um, it is such a, a cool. If you show. insist, it's a it's a it's a cool show. Um, <laughs> and in terms of the the casting and when I mean when they started announcing uh, who was going to be playing, I mean when did you find out about the uh, the the faces that were going to be portraying the characters that you put together? About eight months before the show premiered, and then when they they I, I started getting. Uh, you know, I, tips and hints what they were going to be, but they were very close, uh, very tight-lipped about it. And so sometimes I'd find out when everybody else found out, but mostly, um, it, but I, I would, the biggest surprise for me was uh, Carl Urban because I'm a huge fan of his. And so it was when I found out he was Butcher, I was like, perfect, you know, and I've got to be friendly with the uh, casting uh, person at Sony. And, and she told me some of the, variations that who, who it almost was and i won't repeat that in case that's not information i can share publicly but it was uh -huh. interesting because ultimately when i saw who almost was were these characters they really really landed on the best people and jack was the biggest surprise because he went into the comic book store uh, Mel, uh golden apple on melrose in los angeles run by a good friend of mine and uh he <laughs> he went in and bought all the all the boys stuff he could find and he told the guy, yeah, I just got cast in the show. And he's like, oh, Derek's a friend of mine. So he ended up sending me a photo of Jack holding all these boys comics. Nice. And a big smile on his face. And I went, that guy's really tall. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, it's supposed to be Wee Huey. And then I, like, I saw that he was taller than, he was going to be taller than Mother Smoke. And I went, okay. But it's really funny because uh, he's so good in the role, it doesn't matter. Because he really does encapsulate that character for me, you know, and him not being Scottish was jarring. I was like, wait, people are going to be outraged. And but it makes sense the way it works in the show. So what they're doing with the show is like I, I also had to realize a comic book and a TV show are two very different things and they can't entertain the same way. So what they've done is they've taken everything, in my opinion, they took everything that was really great about the comic and then did their own thing with it. So it functions as a TV show without losing the spirit or the heart of those characters or the story. 
and the story is just you know it's brutal and funny and everything it should be and they're telling a kind of a broader picture because they can um so i really i i love what they're doing with it and i'm okay that it's not verbatim because i think in some ways it makes the comic book more fun to return to because then you get a totally different experience but you know and a novel gets adapted you know everything's not going to be in there it's the same kind of not only that but you can come in surprised as well you can come in and yeah. uh and enjoy it as a fan uh, i mean what was the biggest surprise for you not necessarily the casting but just in the in the way that they put the suit together i mean for myself it was how far they actually went yeah. um, in terms of violence and the swearing and just usually you'd think for amazon they want to just okay let's that's it's a, a streaming platform let's dial it back but they they went far and out the other way with it it's a it's a streaming platform let's just do what we want yeah you know because you have the choice not to watch it it's not being sponsored by you know a beer company and they don't have to sell pharmaceutical or cars in the middle of it it's amazon they they handle it <laughs> yeah so, they've, uh, they've got the money in the background I heard, I heard they're doing okay yeah <laughs> But they've been a, it's it's been a really good uh, experience overall. Like it's been, uh, I, I love what they did with it. I think the fact that, um, but that really comes down to Eric Kripke and Seth Rogen and, and Evan Goldberg. Like those those three people really wanted to make sure that the the, the show had a bite, and I'm really grateful for that. And, and Kripke is an incredibly good showrunner and very thoughtful guy, and he created a great environment for people to work in. So I, I personally give a lot of the credit to him. He's the vision for the show, and he loves it. He's so proud of what he's doing, and quite right too. Um, we've got a couple of comments. Uh, we are going to wrap this up in about five ten minutes, guys. So if you've got any last minute questions, do jump in. Um, we've got Dan Berry saying, speaking of the boys and casting, what is your thoughts on Jensen Ackles as Soldier Boy? Well, I just the fact that uh, my kids are huge Supernatural fans, and that's my entry to knowing who Eric Kripke was when he got the boys. Yeah, that Jensen Ackles. That's it's going to be amazing because that's going to be a bit of a reunion on the set for them. Yeah. And at the same time, I think he's just amazing on supernatural. So yeah, bring it on. I'm, I'm curious to see what he does with the character. Cause um, the, I think, I don't think a lot of people recognize just how flexible he is as an actor. He, he can go in all sorts of places. So I'm, I'm really curious about that. Uh, Liam D Carl is saying, um, uh, Carl was one of the best casting Choices of all time. Agreed. And indeed, so far as the, I love the changes, and I'm so glad they went balls to the wall. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I think I, I, one of the things that early on I was like very. That's almost why I'm like grateful that it didn't become a movie franchise because that's why we couldn't get a green light on it. Adam McKay had uh, rewritten, uh, gone in and written with uh, Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi. Like they had a whole screenplay that Adam McKay really went and did some hard work on, and we still couldn't get a green light. And I think, and that was about the year that uh, Iron Man had just come out, the first one. So Marvel Studios had just broken ground doing such an edgy Iron Man movie where it wasn't really, you know, kid stuff. And they, I don't think the studios really knew what was possible. And I think it freaked them out, the, the idea of bringing like filthy superheroes to a, a, a movie screen. And, the, you know, PG-13 was like the most we could reach for. But I think that would have been done at a, it probably would have been a very funny movie, but it would have been a very edgy movie. Yeah. And I think when you really get down to the heart of this property with the boys, it's like it needs that edge. It's like it has to be in there. And one of the first conversations I had with Eric Kripke was uh, I really wanted to make sure, like, if, if anything is, what do you want to see in it? I wanted that moment where Huey looks down and he's holding the severed hands because 
if you don't have that point, I don't think that the impact of the story it really settles in and that really does set the tone for where the whole thing goes because that's where Huey's moment of tragedy is also his inspiration for revenge and that's what Butcher taps into but if you don't have the horror of what these people can do you know and in the book it was much less uh, like A-Train's more sympathetic in the show I think than he ever yeah. was in the comic because in the comic he just doesn't care like he's just you know stretching it out and you know, adjusting his suit and then he looks around and Huey's like in shock and he's just like, oh, okay, you got this right by, can't stop the A-Train and he runs off doing his uh, catchphrase, yeah. you know, whereas like at least A-Train in the show was a little bit like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't, I can't, I gotta go, you know, at least he was emotionally affected, whereas like what Ennis and I did was much less uh, caring and it was much more, uh, callous yeah uh, i think for myself i'm i'm rather glad it didn't get um turned into a, a film if anything because uh, as we've seen throughout the run of uh, the boys uh you you really let um the characters breathe over that length of time and yeah, i think with the, se the series you've got that opportunity to do that yeah and that's really great then there's a lot of story to tell and i i know i know i'm hoping that they're gonna keep going for you know the foreseeable future because i'm really happy they've announced season three is already a green light we haven't even seen season two and they greenlit season two before we even launched season one so that's that's a good uh, i hope that role keeps going <laughs> Personal, personally uh you know it's good it's good for me overall but also because i'm enjoying the hell out of it i've read all of season two and like it's i think everybody's gonna have a good time excellent i mean certainly the the tease we saw at um, uh, San Diego Comic Con at home, uh, whetted, whetted a lot of people's ap appetite for it. Yeah. So I think we're yeah looking forward. Last to season it. we gave you a dolphin. This season a whale. Next season. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, I've got a couple of um, quick fire questions just to wrap up on. Once again, guys, last questions. If you want to get them in now to the time, um, I know that um, you're a guitar player, uh, yeah. and I know that uh, uh, you love your music. I'm really curious. I, I always like asking this question of artists about what your soundtrack uh, is like in your studio when you're working. Are you somebody that likes to have music on or are you someone yeah. that likes to just focus on the board? Yeah, I listen to music a lot. I Mostly in the evenings when I'm relaxing. I, 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 take, I listen to TV a lot during the day because, you know, I, I'm news junkie. But um, but when I, that gets to be too much, I, I listen to music. And uh, But I, I have a wide variety of taste. I had a uh, kind of a funny upbringing. My parents had me, uh, they were an older couple when they had me. And so I grew up with a very, with three different generations of music competing for my ear at one time. So my father loved big band swing and Frank Sinatra and that kind of stuff. And my mom liked that too, but she had a real penchant for um, like classic country, like Marty Robbins and Johnny Cash and wow. uh, that kind of good stuff. And Hank Williams and, uh, she even took me to see Johnny Cash when I was like eight. So I saw, I've seen Johnny Cash live. Which That's was a name drop. Pretty wow. amazing thing to have in your, you know, memories. Uh, and then my sister, my older sister was really into like seventies disco and rock, you know? So, uh, Ario Speedwagon, the Bee Gees, ABBA, uh, that kind of stuff was always coming through my bedroom wall. So I kind of somewhere in there found my own thing. Uh, I used to listen to a lot of AM radio. So I, I have a penchant for that, you know, kind of, saccharin 70s stuff that's sort of like my musical comfort food and i can lip sync like just about anything um but as i got a little older i got really into heavy metal uh because none of my 
family was listening to that. <laughs> so I got into like Ozzy Osbourne and Iron Maiden and that, you know, Rainbow and stuff like that. And then uh, Dio, I love Dio. But then uh, that evolved from, as my musical change, taste changed, I got into punk. And then I was really into The Clash and uh, Seven Seconds and Misfits and Sex Pistols, love the Sex Pistols. And uh, you met Johnny Lydon once. Um, and that evolved into discovering stuff like, and I, I dated a girl who was really into New Wave. And so I was introduced to like The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and the Smiths. And Damn, you went all over the place. <laughs> all over the place. And then I still, and I'll still listen to all of that. I still listen to Johnny Cash and Hank Williams, and I'll still listen to Big Band Swing and Edith Piaf, and I'll still listen to, you know. Your, and, your random, your hit shuffle on your Spotify must be I get into the, like these trails where like I'll go on this for a long time. And then I'm also really always interested in new music, so I'll, I'll, I'll seek out new artists a lot. So. Cool. When you do pick up your guitar, what is the kind of go-to thing that you start strumming? I'm a... <laughs> Um, I'm a big classic rock guy when it comes to my guitar. So like, uh, I know a lot of Tom Petty songs by heart. Um, I just learned to play Tonight It's You by Cheap Trick. Uh, nice. So I could play stuff like that. I write some original stuff. This is a hobby. So I have my own music cool. and um, you know, I don't, I'm not going on tour anytime soon and I'm not going to pick up my guitar <laughs> for you now. But if you get enough drinks in me. Fair enough. And also, I know that you um, have also, uh, you'd say that you've got uh, plenty of uh, uh, figures around you uh, yes. and that you make, uh, you've make you made your own as well. Uh, is that something you're still able to uh, still I, do? I don't as often, but I, this is one of the more recent ones. I made a butcher. I'll tell you what, I am going to full screen and solo that so people can see it. Oh, cool. Based on my, you know, comic drawings. So. <laughs> Very cool. Excellent stuff indeed. Um, what is your process nowadays? Uh, digital, um, traditional? What, what's your what's your usual? I still work pen and ink, um, like, and then I've evolved over the years to where I I start with pencil and paper, I ink it, and then I scan it, and then I'll drop things in digitally to enhance it. So I'll, you know, I it, I got endless zipatone. Where back in the day you used to have to cut it with an exacto knife and it came in limited supplies, but with the computer you can put as much as you want. So I'll tone the pages and set an atmosphere and a mood and uh, you know added special effects to the line art in ways that looks better than if I tried to do certain things by hand. But uh, mostly I, I still work with uh, digital. I'm sorry. Uh, pen and ink. Yeah. Yeah, pen and cool. ink and digital. Cool. Okay. Uh, final couple of questions coming in. Uh, well, number one, Leanne D. I think this is of the uh, uh, the figure, the butcher <laughs> figures. Uh, I, I'm I'm so jealous. Um, <laughs> yeah, for God's sake, don't have that on a table nearby because it may go it may go it may go missing <laughs> if Leanne yeah, is swinging by. <laughs> uh, she is asking, uh, will we see terror? Yes. Ooh. There you and go. I'll be able to say that because Eric Kripke has already said it. So yes, <laughs> you're going to get a really people that love terror. Season two is going to be your season. Fair enough. And uh, coming, I mean, this is actually uh, dovetailing into the, the question I'm going to uh, ask to finish up on. Uh, now that it's going to be coming out soon, how did the new Hellblazer title come to be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, Tom Taylor and I have been friends for a while, uh, had a mutual admiration society going on for a lot of years. I'd run into him in San Diego and we just hit it off. Um, memories of San Diego. Uh, back when he was working on Wolverine and we talked about... Um, you know, the female Wolverine and 
all that, but we always wanted to work together and an opportunity arose with Deceased, uh, where there was a John Constantine section and he had written and he really wanted me to draw it. And Ben Abernathy, who's a good friend of mine, the editor, thought that was a great idea. So I did the seven pages of Constantine for this Deceased Good Day to Die special. And that uh, from there, we had an opportunity to pitch to Black Label. And we were originally going to do a team up book. And then they decided that it would be better if we just did a straight Hellblazer story. Uh, and so we did. Uh, that's how Hellblazer Rise and Fall came to be. And it's written like Tom's writing it. I'm penciling and inking it. My friend Diego Rodriguez, who I like to work with as often as possible, is coloring it. He did an he's doing an amazing job. Um, and it's a great story. It's a lot of fun. And it's mostly a labor of love as Tom and I just really wanted to work together. And I think we'll continue to as often as possible. I'm well, I'm a Hellblazer fan. So uh, I think you're going to, well, this is going to be a good, uh, if you like a fan of like the Ennis Dillon years and Jamie Delano, this is really a, a throwback to that kind of a story. So it's, oh, wow. it's more like John is, um, John's just more meat and bones as opposed to like taking on, you know, larger DC universe crisis. It's really a self-contained story, which is why it fits so well for the black label. Uh, but it's more like a vertigo John Constantine story. You, you, it's, 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 it's really about him and his world. And it feels more like those, those comics than it does like some of the stuff I'm seeing from the DCU. So yeah, it, I, I, I it, get that a little bit. Yeah, I get that. Um, I saw a, I was sat in, sat in on a Garth Ennis panel and he was saying he finds it very difficult to read the current um, iteration of uh, uh, Constantine. Um, not necessarily because he's not a fan of the people involved and not a fan of the creators, but he feels that there's, there was a little bit of a, it was a little bit too harsh and he, he, he wanted to have that more of a, a the, the character which he created so i'm, I'm guessing well, he, he's one of the best writers that ever wrote the character yeah. for sure. him and dylan were an absolute perfect team absolutely um uh, which kind of like leads just to finish on uh, so what's next basically uh, and that also kind of ties in with the conventions when can you feel or see that you'd be back at a convention again i, I honestly don't know I, yeah. i've been invited to a couple and i'm, I'm not traveling uh while this thing is still you know, raging out there, and I'm I'm very much of the mind that the sooner we all lock down and let it pass, we'll, we'll, we can get through this like New Zealand did. But even with all their careful, it's raging up again. I got lucky. I went to a, this lovely convention in Mexico right when this thing was breaking out, and I didn't get sick. But I was like hand sanitizing like crazy, and that's before people knew to wear masks. So we we're getting the opposite information then about don't wear masks, but now you should. So. But now they know how it travels, so it makes sense. So I'm not gonna go on an airplane or uh, do any, or, or get in a crowd with people until I know that this thing is completely, uh, you know, we got a vaccine and numbers are way down. Yeah. <laughs> because you're, uh, you're, you're not the only one to mention I, I wanna, it. I wanna keep drawing comics for y'all. <laughs> yeah, I gotta, I mean, and I got a family to support, so I can't roll that dice. True. I mean, yeah, you're not the only person. I'm in the age to... group where, like, if it hits me, it'll probably take me out. So. Ouch. Uh, there's, uh, okay, let's um, let's leave that um, idea behind and uh, look. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <a bit> more... <laughs> yeah, let's think a bit more positive then. So, uh, what's next, as well as the the Hellblazer um, uh, title? That Is there any other ideas that are percolating at the moment? 
yeah, I'm actually working on a couple of things. Um, I can't announce them until they're ready to be announced, but uh, I am very excited about Helpfully as a Rise and Fall. I am going to continue on to do Oliver. I'm just going to get Rise and Fall done first, and I got the second part of the Oliver story. We're going to all wrap that up. Um, that's probably going to be like later in the year. Those start coming out, um, but I have every intention to go back and finish Oliver for you to Oliver fans. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't read it, the first trade paperback is out, and it's it's very yeah. good. It's, it's some of the best work I've ever done. It's a labor of love, so it's one of the reasons I don't just pump it out. I really am crafting it, and it's a self-contained story, so I want it to be everything it can be. And Gary's an excellent writer. I've had it. We've been adapting this screenplay he wrote back in the beginning of uh, 2000. And it's been, and we're transforming it into this graphic novel. So it's it's awesome. it, it, it's it's making the jump pretty nicely. Cool. Uh, we've got uh, the final couple of comments uh, that have come in. Uh, number one from Dan Berry. Uh, Derek told me about the new Hellblazer title off the record after our interview last year. I've been anxiously waiting for it ever since. So no, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't tell you anything, Dan. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, Liam D, I'm looking forward to it. I love Tom's writing. Yeah, I'm, yeah, a, I'm a huge fan. And we're getting along great. He's like, we just, you know, I turn in pages and I always get something really positive back. So he seems to be pretty excited about it as much as I am. So Excellent stuff. Well, I think we've kept you long enough. Derek, thank you so much indeed for coming on. Oh, I really appreciate your time. Thank um, you everybody for tuning in and for your questions. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think we will actually um, just absolutely point people in the directions of your Twitter, because like I say, um, I do feel that you have um, a, a real strong sense of um, uh, your social standing, not social standing, but your social um, feelings um, towards the world. And I think it's worthwhile pointing people in that direction. Your Twitter is? Uh, Der at Derek R. But you got to spell my name right. I'm never going to live that down, am I? That's just that's just going to be that's just going to linger. Well, I usually oh, get an extra, I usually get an extra R in my first name and the Robinson, so it's you know you only you only you at least spell my first name right. Fair enough. Oh God. Okay. I, listen. Um, at some point at a convention within the next couple of years, there will be a bar where myself and Derek will be meeting up. There will be a bottle of whiskey. You're more than welcome to come along. Tap us on the now shoulder. You're talking. There will be a finger of whiskey for you if you want to kind of find us tapping the crap out of that one. But there we go. <laughs> but Derek, it's been I a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for coming Thank on. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. There was, and I look forward to that uh, future where we're actually able to commune again and drink together. And and everybody, I just you know, if if and if you get offended by my Twitter feed, don't let me know. Just <laughs> all I want is for people to stay safe and be informed, and that's the best I can do. Fair enough. It's not, it, doesn't from a, it doesn't come from an angry place. It comes from a, a hopeful place. It certainly does. Derek, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Take care. So there you go. Derek Robertson, um, a pleasure talking to him. Um, don't forget, uh, we'll be posting this, uh, the audio version, up over the next uh, day or so. Um, hopefully you get the chance to uh, listen back to it because uh, that was a great chat. Um, we've got a couple of really great chats coming up, actually. Uh, so hopefully you can uh, tune in for uh, some incidental episodes that we've got lined up, uh, which are going to be happening over the course of the, uh, the next couple of days, including one that I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit apprehensive about, but um, I'll uh, get into that in a second. Tuesday, we're going to be talking to David Popos. Um, he's got a new um, Kickstarter coming out uh, about his book called The Oz, or The OZ. Um, it's a fascinating-looking book, um, a real interesting take on The Wizard of Oz um, uh, 
story, did that kind of framework. Really looking forward to talking to David about that. Then on Wednesday, it's going to be uh, a chat with Jeff Trexler, who is the interim uh, director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. At the end of the day, this is an organization which has done some great work um, over many years, many decades, but it has been mired by uh, recent revelations um, and people really have very passionate views about the future of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, including Jeff. Jeff wants to talk about it and we're going to be doing that on Wednesday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. The next bunch of Sundays, James Tin in the fourth, Cullen Bunn, Julie Tate, who's going to be talking to us about Lakes Festival. And we've got the creative team behind That Texas Blood, which is being published by Image, Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips. And we can confirm as well the Sunday after we are going to be talking to uh, Elsa Le Chatelier. So looking forward to talking to her as well. Some great uh, creators coming on. Uh, so do stick with us here on Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. From myself, Leonard, and from Derek, do take care. Enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, we will see you on Tuesday for our chat with uh, David Propost. From me to you. See you soon. Bye-bye.